Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Janixa Bravo and Joy McMillan. Janixa is the director of the new film Zola, and Joy is the editor of that film. Based on the viral Twitter thread by Asia King, it tells the real-life story of a Detroit waitress slash part-time stripper who travels to Tampa to dance. Or at least, that's why she believes she's going to Florida. Upon arrival, the plan to dance and make money goes awry. Here's a clip from the trailer. Hey, last month I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made like five G's a night. Because of my we just met yesterday and you already trying to take whole trips together? Be ready by two. Hi, bitch! You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. Is this what you came here for, Zola? Do it look like I came for this? All this money you made, I'm so proud of you. I don't fuck with you. No more. I ain't do nothing wrong. Starring Taylor Page, Riley Keough, Coleman Domingo, and others, Zola has been in theaters for nearly a month now. It's also just been made available on VOD, 
wherever you rent your movies from home. I am admittedly biased on the subject, as you'll hear in this episode, but I've seen a lot of people online say something like, this feels like the return of movies. And not only the return of movies, but movie theaters. Sitting in that dark room next to strangers, you couldn't ask for a better return than Zola. It's a singular piece of filmmaking. It captures both the chaos of this harrowing story and its frenetic retelling via Twitter thread. It's at once of the internet and about the internet. It's funny and painful in the way the best dark comedies are, as you realize mid-laugh that what you're finding humorous is maybe not so funny at all. But if you're looking for a dissection of the film and its politics, especially the very real racial dynamics at play, you have to search elsewhere. What I wanted to do with Janixa and Joy was to offer a kind of director's commentary of how they made this film, a window into their creative process. We do our best to not spoil the movie for you as we unpack some of the more discussed scenes in the picture. A sex montage, a GoPro rendition of Hannah Montana, the strip club dressing room prayer by T.S. Madison. Even if you haven't seen Zola, though, I think you'll enjoy this talk. There's a lot in this conversation about creativity and collaboration. This is Janixa and Joy's third film after Man Rots from the Head and Lemon, both of which you ought to see if you haven't. And ultimately, as you'll hear, this is a conversation amongst family, exploring how they make the art they make. To do this, we sat around Janix's dining room table this past week, trying to just not make fun of each other for an hour on microphones. That's easier said than done when we're all in a room together, but sometimes, in pockets, we succeeded. And the result is a really, I think, special episode. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we did having it. Now, here is Janix Bravo. Enjoy McMillan. Joy, Janixa. Sam. Last time you guys were on a podcast, you couldn't talk about the movie. It was summer of 2020. We're a year removed from that. The film is out. How are you both feeling? Lighter. I was going to say elated. It's so many things. It's kind of, it's not exactly hard to put into words, but it isn't one thing. Lighter is the easiest and the simplest. There's also buoyant. I feel... It's not a chapter close as much as it is a beginning. I like or love the feeling that it doesn't belong to me anymore now that now it belongs to many. You were tired of it. You need to let go. No, I wasn't tired of it, but that is the life cycle of making that kind of art, right? Make Making a film, making a television show is uh, making a short film. A film, by the way, is also a short film, so I thought I would really make that clear. Um, <laughs> there is the the life cycle is such that last stage is that it now gets to leave your body, and so I feel there was, and I feel we talked about this when we were on the A twenty four podcast that I felt very much like I was in this kind of ellipsis, right? It's it's something like quicksand. It's something like uh, having a sense of your 
your feet, but not having the right terrain to to make it through. So how do you feel? The thing that I am so happy to see and experience is just the variety of people who are finding such pleasure in watching Zola. The audiences have been so varied and um, from young to old, not too young. <laughs> but How young? <laughs> well, I saw on Twitter someone said that a toddler wandered into Zola and the audience collectively gasped. And I was they meant to be at Boss Baby 2. That was a real era. <laughs> Boss Baby 2 was right next to them. That's what happened. I can't imagine being the parents being like, wait, where are we? I met a 14-year-old actually at one of our screenings who had come to the film with his mother. And it was their second time watching it. And his mom said, we're going to go watch it again tomorrow. And I nearly shot myself. First of all, I couldn't believe how young he was. And he was really, he was just super special. And uh, he'd read about the movie last year when it was at Sundance and said he'd been following it. And once it came out, he said, I had to be there and loved it. No, that's true. He's like 14 or 15, young white kid with his mom. How did they process the sex montage? I, that's what I just thought it was so amazing to me that he had seen this movie more than once and with his mother. And then his mother said, we're going back. And I just want, I was like, I have so many questions and mainly you're cool. Like what my parents wouldn't actively take me to that movie one time. And while we were in it that first time, I would be hearing a lot of, mm, 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 mm. and that car ride home would be hard because they would be like, how did we get here? What you looking at that brought us here? That's my parents' accent. <laughs> or you told your mom at the premiere all the parts that she didn't like were my fault. And I continued that dialogue the next day when I saw them. And then your mom was like, so you're the triple blame. Yes, exactly. She knew who the trouble was. You're the trouble. Anything that's wrong with the movie is joy or a 24 and anything <laughs> that's good about the movie. That's just me. That's where I could shine. You guys, that's where I was allowed to shine. I just, I just, uh, that's just, that's what I have to say to my parents because there are things that definitely stress them out. And I couldn't boldly say, well, that's me. We have a question here from at, very TB. She says, does Joy ever get really upset when Janixa teases or pranks her? If so, does Janixa care? <laughs> Joy, why you look scared? Where'd that question come from? Because yesterday I wrote on my Instagram. <laughs> Where did that question come <laughs> Joy, the face you were making while Sam was asking that, you were just like, that is not where this is supposed to go. This is not what I signed up for. I... What the fuck is this? I posted on Instagram <laughs> that we were going to be doing Joy, this. Joy, I'm going to need you to buy into this podcast real quick. <laughs> Joy's like, I'm professional, I'm light, I'm small, and I can't. And I'm like, I've known you for a few years, and you're none of those things. So we're going to need you to step up. <laughs> I agree with that. No, because they're actually really good pranks. And it's funny because some people are like, how do you not know she's recording you? But Janixa has a really good, like so many times I've asked her, are you recording me? And she's like, no, I'm texting. But she has a really good face when you're recording me that looks like you're just doing something on your phone. So I just wanted to let the people who've questioned how, how intelligent I am to... <laughs> 
The other thing is, I guess I'm always on my phone. And so if the phone is attached to my hand, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm recording because maybe most of the time I'm not. But I actually think most of the time I was. You are very funny and your laugh is really good and poking fun with you and at you and like literally farting and being like, Joy, do you smell that? And just like seeing your reaction is it just, I, I didn't grow up with sisters or brothers. And so I really feel like when we're working together, I feel very much in family with you. And I feel like you're my sister. I'm, I'm the older sister, clearly. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Janet's the middle sister. Janet's my dog. You're the youngest. <laughs> I do think you're always on your phone. I think she's right. Thanks, Sam. But you'll see why I'm bringing this up. Okay. I think it is part of your artwork. I think it's your Joel Meyerowitz impression in some ways. And we have a question here from Meg Penny, who says, I remember you shooting many movies via your Instagram stories while you were in Florida filming and you captured it so well. I feel like there were moments in Zola that was a direct extension of this and you and your good eye. I love to document. And I think a lot of people love to document, especially in this moment, because we have such a direct access, right? And for me, I think documenting in that way, I am obsessively photographing, obsessively recording. Most of it is just for myself, right? Or most of it just exists on the phone for me to never even look at again. But I feel it's some version of being able to compile memories and time and place. I mean, leading up to the film's release, I went back and just did a Tampa search on my phone or Florida search on my phone and went through a couple thousand images that I had shot from the first time I got there to the last day that I was there. And it was beautiful. There was a lot that I didn't remember. And so it was great to be able to have this catalog or record. And when I say it's beautiful, I don't mean the images themselves or the content. I mean to have this direct catalog from my life that I can kind of pull from the bookshelf is very lucky to be able to have that. And also to look back on that moment warmly, because there are a lot of aspects of making the movie that were were not very warm, you know, or just really hard. With distance, we all tend to do some version of rewriting the narrative, right, of how an experience was, especially if the outcome is good. And I think the film's outcome so far is good and seems to be good. And and I think it will continue to be good. And so a lot of the hard aspects of it just feel like it was worth it. Joy, at what point in the editing process did you feel like you had figured out the movie, that it was starting to work in a way that you could you could see it? Oh, there's so many good moments, but it's funny because... It is one of the things that people probably ask me the most about is the sex montage. But I just remember when Janixa was describing to me how she wanted the images to scroll. And in my mind being like, I don't know if I've ever really seen that before. And how are we going to do that? And just the coming together of not only like the sound design and you talking to Mika, I think it was all that jazz. The score that she had done before was a little more kind of like haunting and it was like the juxtaposition of doing something that's I don't know how to describe sex work very I think people see sex work in a certain way but the juxtaposition of it being a sex montage but laying it with music that had such an upbeat to it it kind of really hit home the very structured way that they're bringing the men in cleaning the bed you know picking off the pubes and it was just it was kind of like it was work I think the music we'd had before colored it and 
you actually really encouraged it to change because I felt it wasn't exactly right, but also I didn't know how to describe what I felt was going to make that better. And in having the back and forth with you, I think All That Jazz is my number one favorite, favorite movie. And I gift myself watching the movie once I'm done working. I have to finish a job. And so I, it was just like, I just kept being like, when do I get to see All That Jazz again? I can't watch it until the film's done. And I think we were we were talking about it. Also, I felt like we looked at a lot of Fosse clips just sometimes when we were just hanging out. And I remembered as we were discussing it, I think we got to one of the things that I had loved in that piece, and I think it's a Vivaldi, I think it's Vivaldi, I don't I don't remember, maybe it's Rite of Spring, but there is this piece that plays every time he has his morning routine. And it was that lightness. And I think what you were talking about is what it was before had this kind of color that colored the work and had a judgment. And the lightness of the music or the airiness around it just gave it the room to be, that it was work. Yeah. Sex work was work. Yeah. And it was work that deserved value, worthiness. And and it was hard also, and that it didn't necessarily need to be painted in this dreary light. Yeah, exactly. I think that section is so specific. And I think for a lot of people, it's very memorable. And I think the handling of that section was done in such, to me, such an inventive way of tying in the scroll that happens when you're on your phone bringing the music to a place I don't think a lot of people would have gotten to score wise. And then also the precision and how, you know, you and Ari arrived at a place of where to place the camera, what to show, like everything about that section is so nuanced. And I think it kind of is like a very specific section. It kind of explains the whole entire film. Everything was thought out, everything. There's a specific reason for everything. I remember asking you about the, kiddie pool in the parking lot and being like, was that there? And you're like, oh, no, no, that was us, production design. (laughs) I think it's the reason why there's people going back multiple times to watch the film is like the intention behind everything is like it's a little gift, like tiny purse, you know, like (laughs) there's so much. I remember my sister Gian saying like, I have to watch it again because when you watch that first time, you're so kind of like in it, like what's going to happen? And then going back a second time, you now know how it's going to end. So now you have the freedom to like appreciate the world. There's so much momentum the first time you watch it that I do think you need to see it again. And I wondered how much you were thinking about traveling through Florida, looking for these locations in, in a place you've never been to, trying to keep all that you had written before and were thinking about. I remember before you were talking about how much you wanted this to be. I think the line was part Lynchian, part Cardi B. I think it was Blue Velvet meets Bodak Yellow. Yes, that You're is You're laughing correct. at it now. I'm laughing at it because it's one of those things our industry has the, it's this meets this. It's sister act two meets Ghostbusters. You know, I mean, it's not that. But you know, like there, there are these odd combinations of like, it's clueless meets don't be a menace, you know? Someone sent me a script that it was Black Swan meets Moonlight. And I was like, is, <laughs> is it? But actually those, but those are not, too, those aren't bad ones. Those are actually, it's the ones where it's like, it's girls trip meets the piano. And you're like, but why, why is it meeting those? And how come? And so I understood that that is this 
while I don't necessarily like that thing, I feel it moves people 10 steps forward, right? And understanding where you are. And so like, I was like, oh, how do I like this? How can I like this thing? And so it's like blue velvet, love, Bodak yellow, great, you know? And it felt like, okay, so we're at the intersect of where both of those things meet. And I think that became very clear to people. Like they knew what that meant. They were like, okay, so it's gonna be corny and then it's gonna be weird, got it. Like understood. But I think that saying that, and at the very beginning when I talked about the movie, when I would say that, you know, I stopped saying that pretty quickly where I was like, please, can I not say that anymore? I remember asking. So I think the publicist at A24, I was like, I don't wanna say that no more. I don't like it. But- <laughs> I'm glad but, I could bring it back. <laughs> and I'm so glad that today, Today, years in uh, to the process, we could finally come back to where Bodak Yellow and Blue Velvet meet. But I think from the outside, someone might think it's like high low and it's not high low to me. It, it's also speaking to my own taste, right? That I am drawn and pulled by someone like Lynch's work and equally drawn and pulled by the presence and energy of Cardi B. And so it's like, that is what I'm hoping to bring here. At what point in the edit did you start to think... Oh, I kind of like this movie. So Joyce is the sex montage. I think for me, it's it's the prayer and it's also uh, Hannah Montana. Those two pieces come together rather quickly. There were still tinkering to be done. And if I had to pick a third, I would also say it's the second time Taylor dances, which is really the first time she dances because it's an arc of the dance. And three of those pieces come together pretty early. Like even if we were to go look at our first cut of the movie, the first cut that we shared with the producers, I feel like those, while they got significantly tighter and stronger, the bones of who they are are still are in the, are in that original cut. I think what was happening is I thought, I know that these three moments are really strong. And if the movie is like trash everywhere else, I know there are three moments that are good. At the very least, we have this, right? Like at the very <laughs> least, there are these three scenes. Oh, and a piss scene, right? Like I felt the strongest about the piss scene. I was like, I don't care what nobody says, this piss scene is it. No one has done this scene ever. And I know I can confidently say no person has used urine to discuss racial politics and women ever. I think people have had questions about that because <laughs> so there's, there's a camera on top of two bathroom stalls, Zola to Stephanie, Stephanie back to Zola. Zola leaves the bathroom. The camera goes back to Stephanie. Stephanie leaves and the pee is, I don't even know how you describe that color. It's mustard. Mustard yellow. Gold. Gold yellow. What color would you call that? A mustardine amber yellow. <laughs> yeah. People have laughed at that scene. I don't always know if they know why they're laughing. Well, I think there are probably a multitude of reasons why they're laughing, right? I don't necessarily want to dissect aspects of the movie, meaning it's why I don't seek out reviews unless I really love something and I want to hear how somebody's written about it because I don't want someone to tell me what I'm supposed to see. I don't want to be given a set of rules on how to process, right? Because I think that like the best thing about any movie and this movie is that someone walks away from it being able to hold on to some aspect of it. And, and so I don't want them to have a different relationship to it. What I will say about it is that I think that I can confidently say I feel that there are black women who watch that scene and have a certain kind of reaction as there are probably white women that watch that scene and have a certain kind of reaction that I can confidently say without coloring uh, 
too much around what it's supposed to mean or feel like. Does that make sense? It sounds like you were getting into politics suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually running in eight years, and so I'm getting myself ready. No. Um, it says so much about the character that she doesn't flush, that she's dehydrated. She sits on the seat. She doesn't lift her ass above it. <laughs> My mom would be very disappointed. It's how I was reared. I mean, you have so many sisters. Yeah. There's no way. I am certain your mother taught you that when you go into a stall, you hold your ass above it. That's why I have such good calf muscles. Exactly. I mean, my calf muscles are, <laughs> my calf and thigh muscles are so good. Like, I can literally piss anywhere. I'm like, where am I pissing? Got it. I'm fine. Will there be a trickle on my ankles? Possibly. But am I going to be able to hold myself up? Absolutely. Because I, we've been doing it since we were children. Since you were a little kid out with your mother and you had to piss and your mom was pissed at you. You found yourself in a bathroom where she was like, hold yourself up. I remember my mom like even holding my elbows where I was like, I'm giving in. I can't. <laughs> I thought that that's how everyone was raised. You know, there is this. When you grow up in the in a certain kind of bubble, in the bubble, like your family's bubble, it's really not until you leave, and for some of us, that's college, where we finally leave home, that you then learn that there are other people that do things differently. I think I assumed that everyone went to the bathroom that way. I'd never had to consider if people had not gone to the bathroom this way. And it's not until I was at a bar in the East Village with a fake ID, having drunk too many Long Island iced teas, that I went into a bathroom stall with two white girlfriends from theater school. And I pissed first as I was taught to. And then I saw one of them sit on the toilet and I was aghast, aghast. I mean like mouth agape, like, well, but what is this? And then the second one went and she did the same thing. At least the second one had been sitting on the other one's ass. But the first one, I was like, goodness. But how? What disease is here? And I then, but then at that moment at 18, I think, oh, do then all white people do this? Am I a part of black people and are black people like this and white people like that? And then I saw other white women not do that. And it was just like, oh, it's just how you're weird. It's just how you're weird. Yes. Yeah. What else you got for me? I have a lot for you. I think the other thing you were going to get to was the first time we saw, because the question of like, when do you feel it's in sync? Mm -hmm. Then is speaking to when do you feel it's not? And the first time, so I'm shooting in Tampa, Florida, and Joy is in Los Angeles getting footage. And the contract that we are in says that when I come back to LA, there's gonna be a rough cut of the movie to watch. And your assistant at the time has made a DVD for me, which she drops off, I think, in the mailbox of my house. And I watch it. It doesn't go all the way to the end of the movie. It like ends at this part of the film. Uh, in case anyone's listening and hasn't watched it, I, I don't need to say, but it ends somewhere in the third act of the movie, probably like 15 to 20 minutes before the film's done. The DVD just stops. And watching this is, is really hard. It, it is really hard. And you've given me no preface. Joy's given me no preface. It's actually her fault. Nothing. She has said no, like, hey, girl, it's going to be like this or like, don't worry, we got it. Joy's like, hi, here's the movie. And question, Joy, did you think about giving her a preface before she watched the assembly cut? Um, Do you want to tough me up? Well, definitely. But I feel like as an editor, there's really no preparation you can give a director before they watch. That rough cut is, is there's a reason why it's called a rough cut. It's rough. And I feel like if I had said anything, I feel like you would have been on even higher alert than you were. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, DVD's coming. Best of luck to ya. It, it's like, it's a few days before Christmas. Yes, this it is. is my, this is my first Christmas not 
married. I'd been with my ex-partner, Brett, for almost a decade. So it's my first Christmas, not married. I'd been in Florida for a few months. All I'm saying is it was real dark and lonely. And then I watched it and I felt terrible. I felt really horrible. I felt like, well, yep, they should have called it. And someone should come into my house and shoot me in the fucking head stat uh, because it's done. <laughs> and Sam, who, who we are doing this podcast with, aside from Joy and myself, has seen the movie probably it would be the third person to have watched the movie the most. And I think you saw it soon after. I've, I think, so I think when I get the second DVD, the second DVD, which now has, that now is the end of the movie, I, I asked you to watch it with me. My memory, and you'll clear it up, but my memory is that I'm feeling really bad and I think you say something to me like, well, it's not the best movie you've ever made. That's not exactly what I said. <laughs> And that's all I am recalling. And look, it's possible that that's not even what he said, but that's what I remember. What I remember is feeling bad in him saying it's not the best movie you've ever made. What I said was. Mm. What you said was you had a good run. You should retire. <laughs> I think theater's for you. Yeah. You, you went to you theater school. You to go to theater. This is the pivot. You've done great work. This what is did it. you say? You watched the assembly cut and it was the second time you saw it, I guess. And at the end of it, you felt like and said, I really wanted to make a great film and this is just not it. And I don't know if that was fair to yourself. I, th I think Joy's right. I, anyone who's watched an assembly cut of anything they've made, whether it's a short music video, it doesn't matter what it is. It's painful and it's not particularly good. And it seems to no longer have all the intentions and thoughts and ideas that you had previously had going into it. And it feels lonely. And you thought this is not going to be a great film. And I think what I said was... That I was right. That it's a piece of shit <laughs> and you ought to retire. <laughs> I think what I said was, I do think you can make a better movie, but I think there's a lot of greatness in here. And I have a feeling at the end of this editing process, you'll feel a little bit differently about the movie. And I think that's still true. I think it's 100% true. I Should I, I not have said that? Absolutely. Yeah, you shouldn't have said that because then I was like, I have a better movie in me. It's not this. It's not wrong. And I do feel that way. And I I am grateful that I feel that way. I I should have lied. No, no, you shouldn't have because I wouldn't have believed. Then I would have held it against you that you thought it was good and been like, what kind of idiot is this? Well, you've um, held it against me anyway. <laughs> of course. It's hard for me to watch the movie and not still want to change things, right? Joy's like, please, no. <laughs> I think I said to you after our New York screening, I was like, aren't there a couple of things you want to change? And you were like, you just laughed at me and were like, oh God, someone help she me. She laughed at you and says, I'm going wanted, to Italy. Yeah, she wanted to Goodbye. get away from me. She was like, girl, bye. Um, I'm, all, I'm overseas now. <laughs> there, there are aspects of it that I feel, it's not only exactly what I meant, it's better than what I meant. Like what? The prayer and Hannah Montana and that dance where I'm like, yes. At the dance, I would probably, I, I wish we had more time to shoot. I just would like, there was a couple other pieces of coverage that I would like, right? But that I feel like this is really what I mean for this movie to be. And I hope that it's always like that. And I think the moment that it is and what I mean by it's always like that, I hope that I am always able to look at the work and go, I could do better. 
or I could do more or there's be because there's there's more to reach to, right? Like I think if I've already ascended, then there's plateau, right? If you've already ascended, then what's next? Then I think I I would need a pivot. I can't imagine that there'll be a moment where it feels like oh, this is exactly it. I I don't know that that is going to be there because I also think my brain is like rotted. So I don't know that I'll get that. By rotted, you mean? <laughs> Broken, uh, damaged, malformed. Yeah. I'll say as an editor, I think sometimes in the process people have amnesia, but as an editor, I feel like our memories are very, Janixa hated when I would pull up notes from. <laughs> ooh. ooh. Ooh, I can't believe you're going to do that. I knew there was nothing that I could tell Janixa when I gave her that rough cut that was going to put her at ease. In her mind, we were starting from scratch. But I remember Lemon. You know, I remember that whole process. And even though it was a rough cut, I was never worried about Zola. There are films I work on where I'm just like, this is probably as good as it's ever going to be with Zola. I'm like, this is just a blueprint. Like mm -hmm. we have, we have so much work to do, but it's going to be fun. Let's go into this because after about a month of editing at a studio here in Los Angeles, you go to Janix's house. Yes. You were in like a cold, <laughs> dingy room on, on off Hollywood and, and near Gower, near Gower. And you would hear like rats running above, like their little pitter patter of their feet. Like I really want to know what that was. It felt like rats running a course. It sounded like someone was running a course, and it it also found, sounded like a sound effect. <laughs> and four weeks into that, I was like, yeah, so we have to leave here because Joy ain't going to make it. She going to jump out of this third floor window. She is jumping onto the sidewalk. It was the carpet for me that was just like every day. I was like, what? who died here? <laughs> so to get away from the carpet yeah. and for you to not kill yourself. You move into Janix's spare room inside your house over in West Hollywood, what used to be your house. The game MASH, you know, like mansion, apartment, shack, house. I would say it was mansion. Um, we moved into my mansion. Mm -hmm. I wasn't uh, going to play that game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was in the spare room um, above the garage looking at the uh, pool, mm -hmm. which was in the mountains. There were definitely garage and there was a garage near us for sure. <laughs> it was the darkest room in my house. Overlooking the pool. It was very much a spare room in my house that before Joy had moved in was like it was supposed to be a guest room, but she had storage. never arrived. It like was it was just, room. it was like a bed that had a box on it. It was like, we really spruced it up to make it this edit space for us. And it became, well, I mean, we quarantined before everyone else did. We right. had a version of a quarantine yeah. together. One of my favorite things about working with you is we'll be in a scene and I'll have an idea. And it's an idea that perhaps I have had before, but I don't remember that I've had it before. We've moved into my house in February. And so let's say it's May. So we're months in. And I'm like, well, I'm just wondering if we could cut here. And Joy's like, mm, we already did that. And I'm like, mm, I don't think so. And she's like, no, we did. And I'm like, okay, well, why don't we try it? And then she starts to go through these notepads. And I'm like, why Why you got to go through the notepads? Just make the cut. They're and called she's like, receipts. And she's like, no, 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 no. She's like, she's like, I'm going to make the cut, but I want you to see. And I'm just like, and the whole time I'm sort of betting that she's not going to find it. And she will go through pads and pads and I'll watch the back of her body as she goes through pads for minutes and minutes. And it's making me crazy and angry and I want to tackle her. And she'll be like, 
on March 3rd. That's right. March 3rd. Hold on. And she'll find the same note, sometimes at the same time, the same time code. And I'll be like, this bitch. And she'll be like, so we could try it. And then and then I'll be like, yeah, let's try it again. Because maybe on March 3rd, I was somewhere else mentally. And she'll try and I'll be like, yeah, no, that's still not good. That is not working. And then she'll like, got it. Hold on. Let me write it down so that she can go back to March 3rd and also this moment. She just has this vast catalog of every cut that has happened in the movie. And it makes sense because while I feel tethered to the whole, she is tethered to the cut in a way that I am not. She just is. She has seen she has actually seen every inch of the movie and I haven't. I haven't seen every inch of the the footage. I just remember Janixa promising to watch those Hannah Montana dailies and uh, to this day she still promises to watch. <laughs> so this is everyone in the car driving to Florida using a GoPro yeah. kind of camera. Oh no, I just couldn't. I would. Tr- I really tried and it made me feel really ill and so I'd get 30 seconds in and I, there's so many times where I'd be like, I'm going to watch it this weekend. I promise. You see, you come Monday. I'll have seen it. I'll have seen the whole thing. And then I'd be like, Joy, I'm so sorry. I didn't. I couldn't. Really you needed cry. a Dramamine. You'd be like, look, Joy, I promise I'm, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to look at these dailies. But I'm just wondering, is there a shot of... <laughs> But that's kind of what you're speaking to, Joy, is that directors have a kind of amnesia and you remember everything. Everything. So you're quarantining in your spare room, editing this movie. Walk us through the notes process between the two of you. They were a plenty. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> She's right. You're not kidding. No, I'm, Yeah, I should say I'm kidding. Um, No, but I the thing that I love. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash 
unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Of about working with Janixa is how thorough she is. And I feel like that's why we work so well together is that I'm never, ever questioning where the note is or how she feels about it. The only thing that I would sometimes question is like, how do you want me to execute a note that just has time code and yuck next to it? <laughs> so Janixa, do, do that? Walk us through that. So, so you would get a time code. That. Did I really just write yuck? <laughs> one of my joys was to, one of my joys for joy was actually to be able to make her laugh in the notes because I knew that there was a degree of, sure, I'm thorough, but I also knew there was a degree of mania and that I also knew that I was driving her crazy. And so I was like, but if I can make her laugh, if she's alone in a room laughing, then it's fine. And sometimes I, I, I mean, I was almost always there so I could hear her alone just laughing and I was like, I did it. Yeah, so she would write notes back to my notes that were not necessarily for me to see, that <laughs> they were just for her. This is the life of an editor. Yeah. And I once got really close to her desk and I was like, wait, are you talking to me on paper? But I never see these. <laughs> and she then told me she always wrote back to my notes. So like if I wrote yuck or I don't like this, she'd be like, well, good luck. <laughs> or, or there would be like, why don't you watch these dailies? Literally. <laughs> You find the cut. Literally. And I was like, excuse me. I think me. I read one of those months. Because you were complaining about some shot. And she said, well, you shot this. Maybe talk to your DP. It was just like stuff like that. And I was like, it was great. I think that's how she was getting out her sort of frustration with you. Because <laughs> some of them I want to remember. Because like when we go over like what I did and what I didn't do, I want to be like, oh, you know, we look for this shot. This was the one that you liked the best. I can show you this alt take. But I just remember like hair placement wasn't right, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then she'll see it and be like, oh yeah, yeah, let's stick with that shot. So some of those notes are to remind me to let her know when we go back through, but in some of them just make me laugh. So many of them are like, we already did that. <laughs> 
she she tried a lot of things you had already asked her to I try. I mean, so much of editing is repetition. It right? is like, just so much of it is repetition. And as good as I think I am of keeping this really, I think I have a really good library of everything we've done. I don't. My relationship with Joy is just one part of making the film. She is a big part of that, that post piece for me. There are so many other people that I'm working with, even though I feel our relationship is 70 to 80% of that post, there are 20% of other relationships to also manage within it that allow us to move forward. And so- I get it wrong sometimes. But I also would say like our repetition of trying stuff and never saying no to trying stuff is like, I think that's where we got so many great moments, like the reputation of clean your butt, you know, we tried it, we'd taken it out and then we went back to it and we found that like symmetry of when it should come back in. And yes, Stephanie should say it one more time. And I think all of that comes from figuring out the language of the movie and then applying it across the board. The basketball sequence of the two kids dribbling above the hotel, the the strange dick montage that's cut with sort of discordant music Why that doesn't strange? match. Not going to get into it. There's so many of these things that speaks to your, I think, inherent nature as a dramaturg that you've brought into this movie and, and the detailed approach you take. Nothing in this film is an accident. And that's why... I think Joy, even through your sort of harassment, she's not going to say it. I'm going to say it for her. That's why she stuck with it. I, I think that's why she stuck with it, is that there was always an idea and a purpose and a destination you had in mind. Oh, 100%. Whenever I work with Janixa, whenever I work with Barry, it's not just visual. It's also sonically telling a story. And so much of that we had to perfect even before we went into the mix because we didn't have a ton of time. So it's like the Twitter whistle, the sounds of their phones, the basketball, which we actually asked them to switch back to our basketball sound. You totally did that. I mean, it's funny that we can be um, so in tune because as Sam asked that question, I was going to talk about the sound design or I was going to talk about some aspect of the sound design where in a talk back around the movie and, and even in some interviews, people have brought up the Twitter whistle or the lock screen sound and have been like, they're just random. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. Joy placed every single one of those. It's like tailoring. She <laughs> stitched and sewed every single one of those. And in fact, there were more and then there were less. We actually like pulled back a good deal. Once we did put more of them in, even, even though at the time when we put more of them in, there were too many. I remember thinking the movie's almost done. Whether or not people are conscious, there's a good deal of invention in the movie that feels really special or feels really unique to it. And they want someone to credit. And I think it's hard for them to credit me because of what I look like. And the the summation of all the parts becomes, well, it had to be all of these people. And it's not me here saying like, I am the whole movie. I am not the whole movie. And my biggest partner in it is Joy. And if I think about the post process, actually, there are maybe three or four things that lead to the end of the film. And that is my relationship with Joy. I actually think it's also my relationship with the development aspect of A24, you know, Noah Sacco and Ali. I think they're a big part of like how we shape that. And obviously composition is a part of it too. But I think that like actually like noting from our producers, Killer, A24, and you, 
are how we get to the final movie. And it's not to say that it's always cheerful because it isn't. I hope that the movie is good enough to make my next movie easier. But I also hope to always have people in my life that are comfortable with saying no to me. And I also hope to always have people in my life who want to push me, right? And it depends on how they're pushing you, right? Like to be pushed with generosity as opposed to be pushed with doubt. And I think about that process and even you, Sam, who's seen the movie so much. I mean, I have forced it on you a good deal. I'm not sorry for that. Um, It was good for you. Uh, um, Happy to be forced. (laughs) But I think... um, Do you feel like I pushed you generously? Oh, absolutely. I am not always good at getting notes. and, and And I think both of you would agree that I'm bullish and a bully and a fascist. I would agree. I would love to be heroic in the notes getting process. I would love to be like, mm, 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 yeah, I got this. Sometimes I need space. Actually. It's like when you first read them, there is like hostility. I'm like, okay, bitch, let's go find me in the ring. I've never been in a fight, but I am ready to fucking go straight for that nose. And then honestly with space, you're like, these are totally fine questions and thoughts to have asked. I don't know where I was mentally. It's because it's something about like parenting or something about being in school where it, feels like you're on the receiving end of not having done your best. I I think that's exactly it. And also it's like time and energy to getting to that point. And sometimes I think people forget to say the good things and then highlight the bad. And so when they're just straight up giving you the bad, it's kind of like, but there's so many other good things. Did you see that? And it's not like they're not aware of the good, but sometimes you're like, let's just get to the bad because we have time, money, got to get through this process. And so I think taking that into consideration is like, okay, yes, like their notes are valid. If you don't agree with it, I think there's something about like opposition or obstruction that can actually lead you to where you want to go or can remind you of your intention and how to be more pointed in your intention. So for context, this was a film shot uh, in the fall of 2018, Mm -hmm. edited from uh, basically January 19 through June 19, finished through the remainder of 19, premiered at Sundance in January of 2020, March 14th, COVID happens. And the plan was to release the movie in the summer of 2020. That, of course, doesn't happen. Then you two sit down for the A24 podcast. And it's basically both of you being, uh, how do we say, depressed. You think I was depressed? No, Joy, you were editing Underground Railroad, so you were okay. The whole podcast is like, the world's terrible, but I got a job. Underground Railroad, LOL. (laughs) (laughs) I would also say the edit starts in October of 2018. But both of you can't believe it's out now. We had this joke going that both Joy and Daniel, our assistant editor, that they would just be working on it like 10 years from now. I'd be like, so I wonder if there's a voiceover 27 minutes in. I'd love to hear one more time. And they're not getting paid for this anymore. They're literally like on Barry Jenkins' 38th film and I'm still working on my second movie. And I'm like, hey guys, I just wondering, like, I'm actually now in a like home for my early onset dementia, but I've got an editing suite. You got a shot of Zola's face. I know most of it's out of focus, but let me just see it 
One more time. It was your synaptic in New York. I literally was like, this is Sartre's No Exit. This is Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Um, we are in purgatory. Hell is other people. I actually think I am other people, which means I am hell. That's accurate. Um, it's Zola is me looking in the mirror, knowing that I will never get there. It's actually like Zola is actually what, like lemon came true. Like the, the prophecy of lemon comes true, except that I'm just now stuck in Zola. That's my third film. That's my, my third film is that, um, I'm, (laughs) (laughs) um, my final, my final entry into race play as film is, um, I'm still working on Zola. That's my third film. (laughs) (laughs) That's a full chapter. You know, fittingly that would kind of be like, you're all that jazz. Him re-editing Lenny yep. over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So true. Absolutely. That's called tying it all back in. Thank you. You're that's welcome. gorgeous. Is that one of the those like sort of like podcasts like from Pull from the Legend? That's what you're supposed to do? Well, this is my first podcast, like oh, I said earlier. Wow, that is so cute. With the success of this movie, you were saying that you hope things get ten percent easier 20 you said 10 do you want to up it to 20 yeah i'm gonna say 20 percent. go to 25 25 thank you because i i think from lemon to zola things got 10 to 15 percent easier how did it get easier i think i got easier there is more money it's not a significant more but there is more money than there was there are more days to shoot i was more confident not that i wasn't comfortable when i was making lemon but i understood that so much of Lemon was an audition, was an audition of whether or not I could. Getting Zola meant that I could, but I had to make the landing, right? So I already had felt like there were certain things I could fight for, or advocate for, because I'd had them on Lemon. Whether or not Lemon had been a successful film or had done well, which, you know, we all know it did huge, huge. People just can't stop talking about it. They're just always like, oh, and then Lemon. On the A24 podcast, and I quote, you said... Lemon, 100% Rotten Tomatoes, 11 out of 10 on IMDb. Did I really say that? (laughs) Well, I was obviously belligerent. No, that was not a very well-loved film. Although there are some people who have seen, after having seen Zola, have uh, either seen Lemon for the first time or have gone back to watch Lemon and have been able to look at it a bit differently, which is great. I feel very good about that movie. I love that movie and and that that is my baby and it's my and Brett's baby. I wouldn't be here if not for that piece. And so the 10 to 15% easier is because that happened on Lemon, there are certain things I could ask for or expect from my experience on Zola. And so I can now use Zola as an example for what I would like on my next film. I get to go... Well, I had this, so it only makes sense that I have that here or more, right? And I think it's that the 20 the twenty to 25% easier is, some of that is people saying yes to you, but it also it's also what you can ask for. It's being able to ask for certain things or have a certain kind of expectation of like, for me to make the best work, I need my environment to look like this and not feel like that is too big an ask. But it's also about trust. It's people saying... We're entrusting you with this money and this script and this movie. And on that previous podcast from last summer, Joy, you said after you were nominated for an Oscar, Miss Joy McMillan. You remember that film? It's called Moonlight, in case you don't remember. 
you felt like things were going to change for you. And, and what you said on that show is that it got you into the room, but then you felt like you had to prove yourself all over again. And I wondered for both of you, are you done proving yourself? <laughs> no, we'll never stop proving ourselves. Even when we get like the Lifetime Achievement Awards, I think some people will be like, mm, do they deserve that? <laughs> but I like that she knows she's getting the Lifetime Achievement Award. That's right. She's like, when I get that, and she's right. By the way, she's fucking right, though. I just feel so blessed to actually be able to do what I set out to do, which is edit films. And I didn't ever think that I wasn't going to be able to do that because I think my parents definitely raised us as like, if you want it, go after it. They never, ever didn't tell us how hard it was going to be. They always were very, very cognizant of the fact that it's going to be a little bit harder, harder for us based off of you know, the color of our skin, but that was never a deterrent for me. Like I was like, oh yeah, now I want to be an editor. I want to edit films. And that's what I set out to do. I don't think I was very aware of maybe I wasn't getting things because I was a female or because I'm black until I like started going out to edit like features. As an assistant editor, I was working. I was constantly working. But then to be like, oh, you're the person in the chair you're the person editing the film. That was when people are a little bit more hesitant to actually giving me a shot. Janexa. The the answer is is similar is very similar to Joy's. There isn't a good deal of nuance to it. But I actually feel like because it is like that is why the work is what it is, right? We've all had our fantasies of if I had been raised with more money or if I'd lived in a certain house or you know, more people had said yes to me, what would my life look like? It wouldn't look like this moment. The the jewel of getting older is being able to appreciate the road more or being able to look back on the road and go, yes, it was hard, but it was totally worth it. And so while it is incredibly frustrating to have to walk into almost every room and start all over again, as I get older, I am not starting at square one. I think I'm starting at square five. And maybe after the movie, I get to start at square nine or 10. I don't know how many squares there are, but there are a lot. It's a board game, right? You're looking at me like I know. You're white and straight. I feel you set the fucking parameters of the game. Of course, you know, it is in your, you know what I mean? I'm glad we get there once. <laughs> you know, I was going to have to tell people you was white. I mean, they already know. So I had to like make it about that. This is my show. I know, but I had to make it about like how you're white and we're black and like, you know, things are hard for us. There's some Mexican in there. Not you. V there is. You are half Mexican. You were about to say very little. I was about to say very little. You're right. And I do believe you're half Mexican. I know you're half Mexican. You, but hold on. You don't have to believe anything. <laughs> no, you're fully. It's not a belief. This no, is not, no. You, this, I know you're half Mexican. This is not a religion. It was questionable at first, but now we fully believe no, it. You're it's not a religion. You don't believe it is. I know, but you're. You, you're like white passing at its peak with them blue eyes. I mean, your eyes are blue. I'm not saying a Mexican can't have blue eyes, but like you are. First of all, if you're listening to Sam's podcast, you know what Sam looks like. It is like it is. I mean, Sam looks like Snow White. He literally looks like Snow White. <laughs> He's Snow White. And and I'm not saying Snow White can't be half Mexicana, oh, but I love that. I want that casting. But he looks like Snow White. So 
you know, there are other half Mexicans who who out here is the you know where what square am I on? I'm five to seven. That's where they are. You know what I mean? And I guess I created the board game. <laughs> your people. Mm-hmm. Half your people. Half of them. Yes. So you're on five. And maybe years from now, I'll move forward a little bit more. I also think, though, a good portion of it is how we also see ourselves, mm-hmm. right? You're going to move through the world invisible. You're going to move through the world being considered less than. And I either am going to believe it or I am going to contradict it or, or I'm going to I'm going to not engage with it, right, in some way. And I think that for a long time, I bought into it. For, for a very long time, I bought into being less than. And I bought into wishing that I was something else. And in this moment, it's just not like that. So 10 years from now, I am so excited for what is just going to happen to me personally, who I will be 10 years from now. I'm going to be better because I'm going to give a lot less shits than I already do. I'm glad you mentioned 10 years from now. That's where I wanted to end. I like to think of this show as a kind of time capsule for me, for the listeners, for the people that come on. And we have this tape that the three of us will always have, but then people around the world will also have. And it's as much for us as it is for people listening. And so if we are to revisit this tape in 10 years, let's go 10 years, what would you like that version of you to know about you right now? This is the thing that I do think is really beautiful about your show is that there is a time capsule to it. It feels a bit like if you wanted a record of what life had been like that, this would be a great place to start. What would I want to hear 10 years from now? I mean, that's so hard to say. I think that I feel a lot of it has been trickled into the episode. And I think what both Joy and I are exuding is not needing other people's approval because we already have our own, right? I have hers. She has mine. That is the win. And that other people are also into the thing that we made is wonderful. It's so beautiful, but that light will fade. And when that light fades, you know, uh, when I am, when I'm in the museum of what my life was with my dementia Alzheimer's, (laughs) I will not remember Instagram. I will not remember Twitter, but what I hope I remember is Joy's laugh, or I hope I remember this moment with you. Try to beat that, both of you, because you won't. You will not beat that. Try. It's funny. I was going to change the question. I think actually I'd like to. Not trying to beat you. This is a podcast, not a race. (laughs) It's all a race every moment of my life. I did not change those levels quick enough for that. That's what I want. In 10 years, what do you both want to do in that time? I think for me... I hope in 10 years that I've taken more vacations. That's good. <laughs> Oof. I've been changed by Lake Como, and I hope that my 10-year self can say I've been back more than once. More holiday. More holiday. More room. Actually, that that's, um, that's really good. I feel like we had this kind of um, capsule year that for some people looked like stagnation. And, and even for some people who did do a good deal of work, there there is still some kind of stagnation around it, right? And now we're back. And I feel just like how we went into quarantine, now that we're outside of it in some way, there was no 
lead up. <laughs> there was no lead up. And now we're just fucking back. And people are like, I got deadlines. And what I refer to as white deadlines, because white deadlines aren't really engaging with where you are at emotionally or what you might need or space. White deadlines are like, hey, girl. Um, Yeah. So anyways, like we've talked to the studio and everyone's here and really excited. I understand your films come out. But anyways, yeah. Um, So can you please respond to that email that we sent? There's also three texts and we talked to your manager. That's white deadlines. So what I am hoping, I'm like fully sweating right now. I'm fully perspiring. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm not. What I am hoping as a culture to speak to what you said about holiday is that we allow for downtime. I I think the thing I miss most about school Mm -hmm. is that we literally had time off. Like come middle to end of June to after Labor Day. We literally had that time off and our parents would take some of that holiday with us. And then we would, you know, spend time with friends or, or we would also have kind of our own calendar, but we really had that time off. And like, we should have two months off, two and a half months off. And so being really on feels really unhygienic and Mm -hmm. it feels as though there, it feels like we don't have room to ask for it. And in trying to make space for myself after the movie, I feel I am being met with some opposition, right? Mm-hmm. And and I don't know how to all the way articulate that, yes, the movie came out three weeks ago and I should just be ready to go back. But I'm like, this is like years. Yeah. It's not only four years leading up to the movie. It is also like 16 years of my life leading up to this moment. Mm-hmm. And, and all I need is sort of this breath. Yeah. And I don't, feel like I'm allowed to ask for it, but I am also afraid of being run ragged because I think that, I think I need the room to be able to be what's special about me and I can feel myself getting pushed into a corner. You need to allow yourself to miss it and want to get back to it. If you never allow enough space to be like, I want to be answering emails. I want to be looking at, you know, costumes and deciding, you know, I want to be back on set. If you don't give yourself space to miss it, then you you take away the joy of actually having access to it. And that's one of the things I, I've been very cognizant of, of like, I need to give myself space away from just going from project to project, because when I'm back in it, I'm going to look at it and be like, this is so special that I'm involved in this. And I'm so excited to now go on this journey. I wish you both that break. Right now, there's so many strangers around this country watching this movie that was born out of the spare room of a West Hollywood apartment mansion with a garage (laughs) nearby. Overlooking the pool. (laughs) My air conditioner was stolen from the garage. I was so sad. I actually took that. I didn't want to tell you. (laughs) And I know that is hard to celebrate right now because you both are understandably fatigued, but that's not that long ago. And I think it's really special that all these people now are taking on this movie you two created together. And that is worth celebrating. And so in the next 10 years, a break, yes, but more to come. And I'm not going to say the best is yet to come because I don't want you to get mad at me, (laughs) but I wish that for you both. Janixa Bravo, Joy McMillan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. So happy to be here. We can raise a glass now. 
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Janixa Bravo and Joy McMillan. Zola is now out in theaters around the country. To see if it's playing at a theater near you, visit tickets.zola.movie. That's tickets.zola.movie. It's also available on demand through Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and more. If you'd like links to all this, visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Janixa and Joy, I have a feeling you may like these other talks with folks like Steven Soderbergh, T.S. Madison, Coleman Domingo, Janelle Monet, Errol Morris, and Joel Meyerwitz. You can find all of those and more on our website or wherever you do your podcasting. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. As always, our executive producer is the inimitable Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lynn. Our editors for today's episode are Caitlin Dryden and Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Callie Syringus, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Our illustrations are by Krishna Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.